Without a doubt, one of the most devastating and painful experiences anyone can ever go through is the loss of a child. Though Bev and I have not had to walk through such a torturous experience, I have been told by those who have that it is especially painful when it's a little child because little ones are so helpless. There is such a sense of loss because the little one never had a chance to experience the joys of childhood and youth. What kind of comfort can we give to parents when they lose a little one? Well, we could say with Abraham, shall not the judge of the earth do right? In other words, God doesn't make mistakes. Even though we can't understand, we can trust him. Even though we don't have the answers, we can trust him. Even when Scripture doesn't tell us all that we would like to know about the death and destiny of little ones, we can trust the good and sovereign God of the universe. Certainly, we can say things like that to grieving parents if the timing is right and if we sense that it would minister to their hearts in some way and if we do so with sensitivity. But I believe there is more we can say. Please turn with me in your Bible to Mark chapter 10 as we continue our series through Mark's gospel. <clears throat> our text this morning is composed of four brief but extremely powerful verses. Mark chapter 10 beginning in verse 13. Mark tells us, Then they brought little children to Jesus that he might touch them, but the disciples rebuked those who brought them. But when Jesus saw it, he was, now we have a variety of English translations here, greatly displeased, angry, indignant. All are trying to grapple with this Greek word here. Jesus was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Assuredly, I say to you, Whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. In verse 15 of this text, Jesus used little children as an illustration of how we need to become, how we must become, if we are to enter the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. He said in verse 15, Assuredly I say to you, and you know that when Jesus prefaced his statement with, with something like that, he was very serious. This was extremely significant. Assuredly I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter into it. It is absolutely essential that we become like little children in the sense of having childlike faith, trust, and humility. So little children are a wonderful example of what all of us need to become in order to make it into the kingdom of heaven. That's what verse 15 is all about. 
But verse 14 is different. Verse 14 says, When Jesus saw it, he was indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. It's easy to read these verses very carelessly and assume they are saying the same thing. But they are not saying the same thing. Here in this verse, Jesus is saying more about little children than simply using them as an illustration of faith and humility. He is not merely using them as illustrations. He is actually talking about little children. In fact, in Luke's parallel account, he uses the term, interestingly, infants. Luke 18.15 says, Then they also brought infants to him, that he might touch them, but when the disciples saw it, they rebuked them. So what we see in verse 14 is not the same thing as verse 15. In fact, this is fascinating, Matthew splits up the two in his gospel account. He doesn't even record them together so there will be no confusion. In Matthew 18, Jesus called a little child to his side and set the little child in the midst of them to illustrate the necessity of childlike faith and humility for anyone who is to enter the kingdom of heaven. That's Matthew 18. But in Matthew 19, infants and little ones were brought to Jesus that he might put his hands on them and pray. Matthew completely distinguishes the two. Verse 16 of our text here in Mark 10 says, He took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. So it's important to see that what Jesus says in verse 14 is not the exact, thing that, exact same thing that he says in verse 15. In verse 15 he says that children are examples of humility and trust. But in verse 14, he says even more than that. And although Mark's gospel doesn't make it as clear because it puts them together, the combination of Luke's account and Matthew's account makes it abundantly clear. So let's see what Jesus says here on this occasion. Verse 13. Mark tells us, Then they brought little children. Remember, Luke even uses the term infants. Then they brought little children to him that he might touch them. But the disciples rebuked those who brought them. All three of the synoptic gospels tell us that the disciples rebuked those who were seeking to bring these little ones to Jesus. Now why in the world would they do that? Because children weren't considered very important in first century Israel. Now, don't misunderstand. It's not that people didn't love children and cherish children, but it's just that they didn't see them as being able to make any significant contribution to society until they grew up. Therefore, the disciples probably reasoned something like this. Jesus is extremely busy. He has very important things to do. He always has people tugging at him with significant needs for healing or deliverance from demons. Even though he loves children, he really doesn't have the time to stop and be bothered by them due to all the things he needs to get done. That's probably similar to what they were thinking. 
It is true that Jesus was a very busy man. His days were filled with what the Father had given him to do. And he did always have multitudes of people with great needs swarming around him all the time. So in one sense, it is understandable that the disciples wanted to protect his schedule and protect his time by keeping away parents who just wanted Jesus to pray for their little ones. I don't think we can appreciate how much Jesus was mobbed and how difficult it was for him to get to the next place he needed to go. You may remember that earlier in this gospel, in the gospel of Mark, we read that amazing statement that on one occasion, Jesus told his disciples to have a boat waiting for him by the Sea of Galilee so that he wouldn't get crushed to death. He basically said, have an escape route for me so I can get in the boat and get away. So in one sense, it is understandable that the disciples wanted to protect his schedule and his time. He wasn't sent here by the Father merely to react to what everyone wanted him to do. He had his own plan from the Father. Sure, the Father wanted him to heal people and deliver people from demons and minister to people in other practical ways, but Jesus also had other things that the Father had outlined for him to do. He had the gospel to preach to all the villages. He had sermons to preach, lessons to teach. He had disciples to train and equip and prepare for future leadership. He had corrupt religious leaders to confront, lost people to reach. In addition, just like us, he needed to pray and keep the batteries of his own heart charged and strong. He needed to spend time in the Word. He was a man. He needed to do those things. So Jesus had a lot to do. He had a lot that he wanted to accomplish and was supposed to accomplish. But people of society had their own agenda for Jesus, their own wishes for him, their own desires of him. That is why Jesus had to pull away on many occasions. He simply could not do everything the Father wanted him to do everything the Father wanted him to accomplish, and accommodate all the preferences of all the people. And the disciples knew this. They knew how pressed he was, how much in demand he was, how full his days were. That's why I said that it is understandable that on this occasion, the disciples stepped in to intervene for Jesus and protect him from all the people who wanted him to do for them what they wanted. I'm sure the disciples thought they were doing Jesus a favor. If this happened to have been an especially busy day, they probably assumed that Jesus didn't have time to add another thing to his schedule that wasn't absolutely necessary. So the disciples rebuked those who brought these little ones to Jesus. How did Jesus respond? Verse 14. But when Jesus saw it, I mentioned this in reading the passage, we have different translations. They all say the same thing, but grapple with trying to, the best way to say it. My version says he was greatly displeased. Some say he was angry. I I personally like the translations that say he was indignant. He was indignant. That's a strong word. And that kind of response must have caught the disciples by surprise. 
In Matthew 15, when the disciples had suggested to Jesus that he send away a woman of Canaan who was crying out after him because her daughter was, was in need of Jesus' touch, they said, send her away. Jesus didn't become indignant on that occasion. Their suggestion then was by no means tender-hearted and compassionate, yet Jesus did not become indignant then. So this must have really caught the disciples by surprise. They thought they were doing Jesus a favor. They thought they were helping him out. They thought they were protecting his demanding schedule to keep him from having to deal with another unnecessary request. But they underestimated the preciousness of children to Jesus. He became indignant. And he used the occasion to communicate something very important to them. Verse 14, he became indignant and said to them, Let the little children come to me, and do not forbid them, for of such is the kingdom of God. Notice this statement of Jesus. He said, Of such is the kingdom of God, or some translations, the kingdom of God belongs to these. What is Jesus saying in that statement? As I mentioned earlier, it is easy to equate this statement with verse 15 and to assume that he is only saying that those who are like little children will be in the kingdom of heaven. But he seems to be saying more than that. He seems to be saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to these, his words. In other words, little ones go to heaven. However, for the sake of discussion, let's assume for a minute that Jesus was only using an analogy. If that were the case, and it's not true that little ones go to heaven, then Jesus has used a poor analogy. Think about it. The analogy only works if it's rooted in the truth. If all little children who die go to hell, or even if some little children who die go to hell then you don't want to use little ones as an illustration of those who go to heaven. That's part of the reason why I would submit to you that Jesus is communicating more than just an illustration. He seems to be saying that the kingdom of heaven belongs to little ones. While studying this topic, Matthew's parallel account of this, I ran across quotes by John Calvin and Charles Hodge from their commentaries in which they both stated that this text strongly indicates, if not proves, that little ones who die go to heaven. Of course, just because Calvin and Hodge say something doesn't mean it's true. But I mention those men because of their reputation for theological accuracy, especially in the area of salvation. And there are many other commentators and scholars who see in these words of Jesus strong supporting evidence for the belief that little ones who die go to heaven. Let me add another thought from this story before we branch out. Verse 16 of this passage concludes Mark's account. He says in verse 16, Mark tells us, And he took them up in his arms, laid his hands on them, and blessed them. Notice that Jesus blessed them. This is an intensive compound verb. 
Do you know of any place in the New Testament where Jesus blesses the damned, the cursed, the rebellious, the unredeemed, the evil, the unsaved? I don't know of any. But Jesus blessed these little ones. It would be a contradiction to say he blessed the cursed. He blessed the damned. No, little ones are not cursed or damned. David evidently understood this. Back up with me to 2 Samuel chapter 12. Back in Hebrew Scripture or the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 12. Most people know the story of David and Bathsheba. King David committed adultery with Bathsheba and she became pregnant. In in an attempt to cover up the whole thing, David had her husband Uriah killed in battle so that it wouldn't look intentional. But God wasn't about to let David get away with such an atrocity. Nathan the prophet was sent to David to confront him with his sin. In the process, Nathan informed him that the child to which Bathsheba would give birth would not live. We pick up the story in verse 13 of 2 Samuel chapter 12. So David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. You shall not die. However, because by this deed you have given great occasion to the enemies of the Lord to blaspheme, the child also who is born to you shall surely die. Then Nathan departed to his house. And the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife bore to David, and it became ill. David therefore pleaded with God for the child, and David fasted and went in and lay all night on the ground. So the elders of his house arose and went to him to raise him up from the ground, but he would not, nor did he eat food with them. Then on the seventh day it came to pass that the child died, and the servants of David were afraid to tell him that the child was dead. For they said, Indeed, while the child was alive, we spoke to him, and he would not heed our voice. How can we tell him that the child is dead? He may do some harm. When David saw that his servants were whispering, David perceived that the child was dead. Therefore David said to his servants, Is the child dead? And they said, He is dead. So David arose from the ground, washed and anointed himself, and changed his clothes. And he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and when he requested, they set food before him, and he ate. Then his servants said to him, What is this that you have done? You fasted and wept for the child while he was alive, but when the child died, you arose and ate food. And he said, While the child was alive, I fasted and wept, for I said, Who can tell whether the Lord will be gracious to me that the child may live? But now he is dead. Why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I shall go to him, but he shall not return to me. What is David saying here? He is saying that he has the confidence that he will someday join his baby in heaven. He was confident that there would be a reunion. Now, as you study this passage and read and research, you will find that some commentators suggest that David was only saying that he would someday be buried with his son. Oh, come on. What comfort is there in joining your baby in the grave? That isn't going to make you want to clean up and have a meal. I can't imagine that David was saying to himself, just think, 
My dead body is going to be placed in the same burial field. Oh, what glorious hope. That's silly. David responded this way because he was sure there would be a reunion someday when he joined his baby in heaven. This is quite a response. He caught his servants off off guard by surprise. In contrast, I want you to notice the different response David had when his wicked son Absalom died. Look at chapter 18. Same book, 2 Samuel, chapter 18. At the end of this chapter, David was informed that his wicked son Absalom had been killed. How did David respond? Chapter 18, verse 33. Then the king was deeply moved and went up to the chamber over the gate and wept. And as he went, he said thus, O my son Absalom, my son, my son Absalom, if only I had died in your place, O Absalom, my son, my son. David stopped mourning when his and Bathsheba's baby died. He started mourning when Absalom died. What's the diff- what was the difference? David had confidence that his baby was with the Lord, residing in the heavenly presence forever. He knew that Absalom, his wicked and rebellious adult son, was not. But David wasn't the only one in Hebrew Scripture to affirm that little ones belong to God because God himself stated it. Turn with me to Ezekiel chapter 16. Keep going to the right past Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, past Isaiah, Jeremiah, Lamentations, Ezekiel chapter 16. (coughs) Ezekiel chapter 16. During one of the darkest periods in Israel's history, the people were actually, if you can imagine this, they were taking their children, their little ones, and sacrificing them to the pagan gods. This was a Canaanite practice that the people of Israel copied. Needless to say, this horrific practice had been outlawed by God all the way back in the book of Deuteronomy. Still, the people of Ezekiel's day chose to do it, and this resulted in one of God's strongest rebukes in Scripture. As we read part of it, I want you to notice how God described these children's sacrifices. We'll pick it up in verse 20. Ezekiel chapter 16, verse 20. Moreover, you took your sons and your daughters, whom you bore to me, and these you sacrificed to them to be devoured. Were your acts of harlotry a small matter, that you have slain my children and offered them up by causing them to pass through the fire? And in all your abomination and acts of harlotry, you did not remember the days of your youth when you were naked and bare, struggling in your blood. Did you catch something very significant about God's description here? In the first part of verse 21, he refers to my children. You have slain my children. In the early part of verse 20, he refers to the children as your sons and your daughters. But then in verse 21, he calls them my children. 
Children are God's children. They are not merely society's children. God lays full claim to these innocent sons and daughters who were sacrificed to these false gods. And I use the term innocent by design because that is the term that God himself uses in Jeremiah 19. Back up there with me to Jeremiah chapter 19. The sacrificing of children that was rebuked by God through the prophet Ezekiel was also going on in Jeremiah's day. I want us to see how God described it. Jeremiah chapter 19, verse 3. Jeremiah 19, 3. And say, Hear the word of the Lord, O kings of Judah and inhabitants of Jerusalem. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel. Behold, I will bring such a catastrophe on this place that whoever hears of it, his ears will will tingle because they have forsaken me and made this an alien place because they have burned incense in it to other gods whom neither they, their fathers, nor the kings of Judah have known and have filled this place with the blood of innocence. Specifically, to what is God referring when he mentions the blood of innocence here in this passage? Well, we don't have to guess about the answer because all we have to do is read the next verse. Here's what he's referring to. Verse 5. They have built the high places of Baal to burn their sons with fire for burnt offerings to Baal, which I did not command or speak, nor did it come into my mind. This kind of thing would never enter God's mind. He would never tell anyone to burn their little ones to idols. He would never do such a thing. Because God uniquely loves children, and here he even refers to them as innocents. That's not to say that any of us are born without original sin because the scripture is clear that we are sinners by birth and by nature. But God recognizes that little ones are innocent in the sense that they haven't reached an age where they have made a conscious, willful choice to rebel against him and say no to him. They haven't reached the state where they have seen the truth of God in creation and chosen to ignore it or suppress it. They haven't chosen to turn away from God. They haven't refused to believe in him, so God calls them innocent. We all understand that term. It's not denying something theological, but we all understand the use of that term in referring to little ones, calling them innocent little ones. Another significant point about this passage is that these were children of of idolatrous, unsaved people. What that tells us is that it is not only the children of believers who are seen by God as innocent and belonging to him, it is also children of idolatrous, unsaved people. There's one more passage we need to bring into this discussion, and that is found in the last book of the Bible, the book of Revelation, chapter 5. Turn over with me to the very last book of the Bible. This is the the scene in heaven sometime in the future. Revelation chapter 5, verse 8. Now when he had taken the scroll... 
The four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each having a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain and have redeemed us to God by your blood out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, and have made us kings and priests to our God, and we shall reign on the earth. Now here's the question I have when I read this passage. How could there be people in heaven out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation when we know for a fact that there are, we know this from history, for a fact that there are some tribes and some people groups that have come and gone, but they never heard the gospel? How will there be people in heaven from those past tribes and people groups? Can God just let those people into heaven? No, he cannot, contrary to popular opinion. He cannot because he has said in Romans 1 that all of mankind is condemned for rejecting the truth and suppressing the truth they see all around them in creation. And he has said that those who have chosen to reject his truth in that way can only be saved by believing in the Lord Jesus Christ. Scripture could not be any more clear on that fact. People who grow up and die in in unbelief will spend eternity in hell. And it's not just their unbelief regarding Christ. Maybe they never even heard of the Lord Jesus. But their unbelief is manifested in the way they refuse to believe in the truth that is available to them in creation and conscience, which are forms of general revelation available to all of mankind. And Scripture is clear that general revelation is sufficient to bring condemnation. So again I say, without any hesitation whatsoever, people who grow up and die in unbelief will spend eternity in hell. It's not that God will condemn them for not believing in a gospel message they never heard. No, they are condemned because they refuse to believe and act upon whatever truth is available to them. And if they don't believe and act upon the truth that is available to them, then why should God give them more truth in the gospel? That only increases their condemnation. 2 Thessalonians 2.10 says that people will, will perish eternally because they did not receive the love of the truth so as to be saved. John 3 says men love darkness rather than light. That is why we can say with absolute certainty that people who grow up and die in unbelief will spend eternity in hell. Scripture is clear on that point and undeniable on that point. So we're still left with the question. How could there be people in heaven, I'll quote the verse again, out of every tribe and tongue and people and nation, when we know for a fact that there are some tribes and some people groups that have come and gone but never wanted God's truth, never were interested in God's truth. Some never heard God's truth. The only explanation I can think of is the salvation of their little ones who died. Now, maybe there's another explanation, but I can't think of one. At this point, some people might be wrestling through the implications of all of this, so let me quickly answer a few questions that I know are on people's minds. 
Question number one. In light of what we have seen in these passages, does the Bible give us the age of accountability? No. No. In fact, the phrase age of accountability is not the most biblically accurate phrase. It's a very common phrase in Christian circles, in Christianity, age of accountability, but it's not really a biblical phrase. Instead, a better phrase, if you want to talk in those terms, would be condition of accountability. Scripture is clear that the more knowledge a person has, the more accountability before God. That is why Jesus rebuked and warned the people of Chorazin, Bethsaida, and Capernaum. They had so much knowledge of Jesus, so much awareness, that he said their accountability and judgment would be stricter than anyone's. Stricter than Sodom and Gomorrah. Stricter than Tyre and Sidon. So you can't really talk about an age of accountability. Because some five-year-olds know a lot about sin, hell, judgment, Jesus, salvation, heaven, and repentance, especially if they were raised in a strong Christian environment. Some know virtually nothing about those things if they live in a pagan context. Only God himself knows and can determine a child's, a person's, and this would be true with handicapped, mentally handicapped people. Only God himself knows and can determine a person's condition of accountability. Question number two. If little ones are saved without personally placing faith in Jesus Christ, is that fair? No, it's not fair. It's grace. Salvation is always by grace. No one deserves salvation. Please hear this. Even the person who places faith in Jesus Christ. No one deserves salvation. Salvation isn't given to us as a reward for receiving Jesus Christ. Salvation isn't given to us as a payment for receiving Jesus Christ. In fact, our faith isn't even of ourselves. Ephesians 2, 8, 9 says, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves, it is the gift of God. Even our faith is a gift from God along with our salvation. So if God chooses to give salvation to little ones who die, how can we find fault with God to give the gift of salvation by grace? Salvation is a gift by grace. If you are saved, understand this, if you are saved, it's by grace. If God sovereignly applies the merits of Christ's death to little ones who die, it's by grace. That leads to question number three. If little ones who die go to heaven, if this is the case, upon what basis does God grant them salvation? The answer is, on the basis of the death of Jesus Christ. None of us are saved by our works. We are condemned by our works, but we are saved by the blood of Jesus Christ. You say, yeah, yeah, but, but little ones never took the initiative to place faith in Christ. Neither did you. Even if you're a Christian, neither did you. God is the one who initiated your salvation and accomplished your salvation by his own sovereign work, and he can do the same thing for little ones if he chooses to do so. Little ones can't repent of their sins 
to place faith in Jesus Christ like grown-ups can do and are responsible to do and must do. They are not the same as those who choose to reject the truth of God in creation, reject the truth of God in conscience, and reject the truth they know and understand. That is why God uses the term innocent to describe them. Again, I say, God is not denying original sin. He's the one that talks about it in Romans 5, but he did not hesitate to use the term innocent. Jesus said, Let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to these. Listen to this quote. In no place does Scripture teach infant damnation. Rather, every biblical reference, whether oblique or direct, to the issue of infants and children who die gives us reason to believe they go immediately into the eternal presence of God. I cannot help but conclude that our Lord graciously and freely receives all those who die in infancy, not on the basis of their innocence or their worthiness, but by His grace made theirs through the atonement He purchased on the cross. These little ones experience salvation grounded in absolute sovereignty and comprehensive grace. Yes, children are sinners by nature. Babies are not without a sin nature. They are, however, without sin deeds. Yes, children are in need of a Savior. Yes, God has provided a Savior for them, Jesus Christ. Yes, all children who die before they reach a state of moral awareness and culpability in which they understand their sin and corruption so that their sins are deliberate, are graciously saved eternally by God through the work of Jesus Christ, end quote. I believe that's what Jesus was saying when he said, let the little children come to me and do not forbid them, for the kingdom of God belongs to these. Now how about you? If you understand what I'm saying here right now, you're not in that category, right? You're not a little one. You're not an infant. Have you humbled yourself as a little child and with childlike faith received Jesus Christ personally as your Lord and Savior? If not, you won't be in the kingdom. You won't. Jesus said, assuredly, I say to you, our text in Mark 10, assuredly, I say to you, It was his way of saying, hear this, don't miss it. Assuredly, I say to you, whoever does not receive the kingdom of God as a little child will by no means enter it. So if you can understand what I'm saying here, Jesus said that for you. Jesus said that for you. You will not, unless you receive the kingdom as a little child, that is, humble yourself, before God and with simple childlike faith receive Jesus Christ unless you do that you will by no means enter the kingdom of heaven so that's what you need to do today before it's too late let's bow together as we close father as we bow before you this morning we have been reminded of your undeserving love, whether it's for little ones or for us. Even the verse we heard earlier at the beginning of the service from Romans 5.8, God demonstrates his own love toward us 
And that while we were sinners, Christ died for us. Your love is undeserving. Your love is comprehensive. Your love is indescribable. And we know from so many passages in Scripture that salvation was motivated by your love. For God loved the world in this way that he gave his only begotten son. This is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Over and over again, you tell us that your marvelous plan of salvation is bathed in love, it's surrounded by love. And as we think about your love for little ones, and we think about your love for us who are so undeserving It reminds us of your character, which salvation is to remind us of, is to expose and to highlight your glorious character, your attributes. And we've seen this morning from the words of Jesus something that every one of us who understand these words are accountable for and responsible for when he said, Assuredly, I say to you, unless you receive the kingdom of God, like one of these little ones. Unless you become like one of these little ones and receive the kingdom, you will by no means enter it. So, Father, I pray for everyone who is hearing these words, who is able to understand, who is hearing and understanding, that your Spirit would work in their hearts, cause them to let go of whatever is holding them back, pride or or whatever it may be, so that they would humble themselves as a little child, and respond to the gospel in simple childlike faith to receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen.